Greetings to all 12 tribes scattered abroad and Shabbat Shalom. Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. Bless the name of Yahuwah and bless all of you that are tuning in this Sabbath. What a true, true, exciting teaching I've got for you today. This is Revelation, the book of Revelation, the Hebraic book of Revelation. We are still in the introduction. Introduction part B today. Now, why I wanted to do a second part is because it's so important for us to lay that groundwork so that we can have a clear understanding of interpretation before we proceed with chapter one. But before we delve into the second part of the intro, I think now's a good time where we can make an announcement of our Connection Academy, if you will. If you go to TorahToTheTribes.com forward slash connect, you'll be able to connect with all of our brethren on the Zoom platform. It's a great digital platform where you can connect with the calendar, Covenant Calendar Club on Erev Shabbat on Friday nights. Then we have the Sabbath group on Sabbath, Saturdays at, I believe, 9 o'clock in the morning. And we will be starting our new leadership with Torah Youth Worldwide. So please, if you're interested in connecting with anybody anywhere in the world, these are great platforms for you, especially the Covenant Calendar Club when it comes to understanding the 360-day Hebrew calendar from a Book of the Covenant perspective. So, I'm excited. Revelation, introduction, part B. Now remember, you can give us some thumbs up if you enjoy this video. If you're in the chat, please give us some thumbs up. It does help us get more people connected through YouTube and the online platforms. And if you want to get a little ping in your pocket, then hit the notifications bell and I may ping you in the pocket when you least expect it during the week. And remember, you can subscribe to our channel and the comment section is open below. So be kosher, keep it clean and make it edifying. So let's dig in a little bit. My hope today is that this would be a short sketch to summarize the evidence of the apocalyptic. That's what I'm trying to do today. But last week, I had four things that I really wanted to try and drive home to set the stage for my understanding so that you could see where I'm coming from and we could delve into the scriptures together. The four things that I was trying to establish last week was number one, who is the author? And I gave you my conclusion that I believe the author is the prophet John, the writer of the fourth gospel. Now, if I made that assertion last week, then the second thing that I tried to bring forth was that I had to, with that understanding, note that there is a distinct difference between the Greek of the fourth gospel of John, which is smooth, which is fluid, as opposed to the Greek in the book of Revelation, which is extremely choppy. What's the distinction? Well, I believe that John himself wrote the book of Revelation, hence, being a Hebrew, his Greek was a little choppy, whereas we can see in the fourth gospel, it's a lot smoother, he had a secretary, a scribe that wrote it for him. And this is something that we see with Paul when he wrote to the Romans. So that was the second point I was trying to establish last week. The third was to say, hey, look, there are different views on the book of Revelation. We have to be honest and address those views. You may agree or disagree. So I wanted to bring forth what are the four views on the book of Revelation when it comes to interpretation. The first was the preterist view. 
that all of this took place and it has been fulfilled in 70 of the common era when Titus rode with his armies on Jerusalem. It's got nothing to do with us today. Preterism, it's all in the past. The second view was the, was the historicist view. And we looked at that last week. And then we looked at the idealist view. And finally and fourthly, the futurist view. So there's three things that I wanted to bring up last week. And finally, the fourth thing that I did want to bring forth with a futurist kind of interpretation was the view of Europe, or as I would say, Eurabia being the canary in the coal mine, talking about demographics and the Arabe, the locust, Arabe, the Hebrew word there for locusts, a play on words of Arabs, being that locust swarm horde that is decimating culture through migration and destabilization. So that was my four things that I really wanted to establish last week. This week, I want to really bring forth the evidence of the apocalyptic. The evidence of the apocalyptic. Once I've done this, I believe that we're going to be safe to now proceed with delving into the book of Revelation with a strong foundation of understanding of not only where I'm coming from, but where other people in history, their views have been, so that we can really dissect this extremely, extremely well. So, with that further ado, my understanding and teaching of the book of Revelation is that the eschatological consummation falls on the present. The eschatological consummation falls on the present according to the biblical interpretation of prophecy. And it's to be interpreted by that generation now. That's my understanding. It is impending and it will shortly come to pass. I'm going to repeat that because you need to know where I stand. And that's going to be how I will teach the book of Revelation that I believe that the eschatological, that's a big word, isn't it? The eschatological consummation falls on my present, your present, your present according to the biblical interpretation of prophecy. And it is to be, it has to be, it simply must be interpreted by our generation here, now, today, if you hear his voice. As the writer of the book of Hebrews said. So, 2 Peter 1.19, it is written, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, don't we? We surely do. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. It's a very dark world today, and we need the light of prophecy to shine into our hearts, into our minds, into our spirits, into our vision, until the day dawns and the day star arise in our very hearts. Because there's a lot of depressed, downtrodden people because they have no light of prophecy in their life. And they're hopeless. They're despondent. What is this world all about? I am invigorated, inspired, and looking forward to his coming with ever-increasing clarity the older and uglier I get. Amos knew this, not that I was ugly and old, but he knew that the prophecies were impending. He did. In fact, he thought, yes, historical judgment of Israel came at the hands of the Assyrians, and he named it as the Day of Yahuwah. Amos 5.18, Amos 5.27. But not just Amos, I'm not alone. Amos is with me, as is the prophet Isaiah, who pictured the overthrow of Babylon in this apocalyptic language 
as though it were the very end of the world. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 1. And then we're joined by Zephaniah, who described a historical visitation as the day of Yahuwah, which would consume the entire world and its inhabitants. And that's in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2, all the way through the 18th verse of the first chapter. But we're not alone, because it's compounding and compounding and compounding the prophet Joel. He saw these historical plagues of locusts and drought, and he brought them forward into the eschatological judgment of the day of Yahuwah. So the prophets viewed the scripture as I view the scripture, as I hope you view the scripture, as alive and affecting our very world that we live in today. Contrasting with that, though, there's a distinct genre of Jewish Christian writings called apocalyptic. Now, they're very distinct. They're very different than Amos. Very different than Isaiah. Very different than Joel. They're very different than Matthew Nolan. Very different than what we're going to be studying in the book of Revelation. Because these particular ancient genre of Jewish Christian writings were called tracts for hard times. And what is so amazing or interesting, I should say, about these writings is that they would exhibit a somewhat similar literary characteristic to the book of Revelation, including symbolism, but they differ in one great, huge, massive, gigantic point. Have I driven that home enough? And what is that one great, huge point that they differ at? Their apocalyptic predictions were not fulfilled. They failed miserably. You see, Judaism produced books like Enoch, Jubilees, The Assumption of Moses, The Apocalypse of Ezra, The Apocalypse of Baruch. These writers were extremely discouraged because of the evils of historical evidence and the persecution of Yahuwah's people by the heathen nations. They believed that their days were in fact the worst of days and the last of days since the end of the age was coming upon them. They were wrong. They failed. Their prophecies failed miserably. Their apocalyptic predictions failed in every count. And as genuine prophecies of future events, these Jewish apocalyptics were absolutely worthless. Absolutely worthless. I'm not saying their writings are worthless. I'm saying that their predictions failed, so as prophecies of the future, they are absolutely worthless. That's not my opinion. That is 2,000 years of history that proves that they failed. Now, that's going to insult some people because that is maybe something that they hold dear to their heart, and I've trampled on some pet um, doctrines right there. But you can't deny that their prophecies failed, that they were not the last generation, that impending doom did not come to them. They failed again and again and again. They're important, yes, but only in understanding the religious hopes and failures of the people whose culture produced them, which is why trying to wrestle a calendar out of such books shows just how easy it is for people today to be easily deceived because they are forgetting two and a half thousand years of history and their prophetic failures that you can't ignore though people choose to do so. I have this 
cunning ability. Some would say it's a blessing. Some would say it's a curse. To be able to dissect and delineate and be able to take information and, and analyze it and make decisions based upon the information without having an emotional attachment to it. That I can clearly discern a whole writing of scripture and be able to extract information the best I can, as many of you can. I'm not alone in this. But with these historical writings also, I'm allowed to and able to read them as poetry, as history, but also able to see where they fell short, where they failed in prophecy and be able to make that discernment and therefore say, well, therefore, you cannot use that for a future application when it already failed in history. And that seems to me like a very balanced way of understanding. But to many, that's an offense. I've offended you now because this was a particular book that you were holding dear for some calculations on a calendar. But calendar is prophecy. It's future because we have not moved yet into the 1260-day count of Revelation. We're about to, but we haven't. So therefore, that's where I differ with the Messianic crowd and the apocalyptic failure books that they use for calculations. I won't do that. I'll use it for history. Does that make sense? I think that's a very important clarification to make on why I make that stance. So I think that many people get very excited, as I once did, and you get all dewy-eyed, or dewy-eyed, as I would say, with um, new calculations and apocalyptic predictions, but they're forgetting one thing. The prophecy's already failed. That's not a good measure for a calculation for your or my future. So, without further ado, these Jewish apocalyptics like Enoch and Jubilees are absolutely worthless for future events. Notice that I did make a clarification there because somebody is saying, well, Matthew Nolan said they're completely worthless. Now, I said they're completely worthless for future events, which, of, of course, does include calendar, because history has proved that my words are true and correct. And you can't argue with that. You can deny it based upon fanciful imaginations, but you can't deny historical fact. And that is... The world that we live in today, with all the socialists, they deny historical fact by holding on to pet doctrines. And sometimes they infiltrate the faith. And it's our job to root them out and expose them in our midst. So the book of Revelation, in contrast, has stood the test of time and the futurist method still stands tall after thousands of years. Still stands tall after thousands of years. Now, with that, I'm going to give you a futurist interpretation today, jumping off on the news cycle and jumping off on the demographics that I did speak about last week. I want to talk about, of course, Revelation chapter 6, but we're going to invert it because I believe it is inverted. I want to talk about the apocalyptic equestrians today. The apocalyptic equestrians, of course, being the four horsemen of the EU apocalypse or the eupocalypse, okay? Because if you hadn't noticed, there's something, something dreadfully wrong, dreadfully wrong with these apocalyptic equestrians. Now, they are European, and it's not that they're riding side saddle. It's not that they're riding side saddle. It's even worse than that. It's that the 
eupocalypse, if we could call it that. And I think we could call it the eupocalypse, especially after London Bridge yesterday. It's all happening backwards. Have you not noticed? It's all happening backwards. These apocalyptic equestrians, they're not riding side saddle. They're riding blooming backwards. You see, instead of the Revelation 6 conquest, war, famine, and death, what we've got going on in Europe is converse. We've got them riding through the EU backwards. I mean, and some of you would say, all oh, typical Europeans are you know, doing everything backwards, right? Well, they are. Think of the EU today. What do we have going through Europe with these apocalyptic equestrians right now? Death. Death. We have the annihilation of the European races because they're too lackluster for love. Too lackluster for love. Failure to breed is what? A demographic death spiral throughout Europe right now. There's your apocalyptic equestrian of death. Compounded upon that, you've got famine. What do I mean? The social system in Europe is cradle to grave. You've got so subsidized benefits from cradle to grave, and it's about to collapse. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been seeing an awfully lot of weird things in the news cycle in Europe about dead bodies being found in houses. And these dead bodies have been in houses for months and years. Have you seen this in the news? It's a common thing in Europe. You'll find some guy whose name begins with M and um, his last name begins with Ajiravanadad or something like that. And they bring his mother out of his apartment and she's been dead for three years. This happens all the time. And do you know why? It's a common occurrence. Because they're getting a thousand euros a month from their relatives' social benefits, and they can't afford to give the corpse up and lose all the benefits. So instead of declaring their relatives dead, they stick them in a closet in the back of the house, and the government still keeps paying the benefits for years and years and years and years. Check out the news cycle. It's a common occurrence. Why would you give up Granddad Muhammad? when you could store him in the coal shed and continue to get his benefits for the whole family. This is a common, common occurrence, especially in those Scandinavian nations that have capitulated to the social welfare system from cradle to grave. So what's going to happen when all of that collapses? You'll get the apocalyptic equestrian of famine. They're riding backwards, aren't they? Death, famine, and the next thing, war. A bloody civil unrest as the benefits run out and the breadlines rise. Are you seeing that in Greece? Are you seeing that in Spain? Are you seeing that in Italy? You are. It is the apocalyptic equestrians, European style, riding backwards. And finally, there's going to be conquest. And how's that going to happen in Arabia? It's going to be the recolonization of Europe by the Mohammedans. And if you can't see that, then I don't know what to tell you. It is as clear as clear can be. The EU, the European Union, will be dead by the fall of 2023, gutted and slaughtered. It's a demographic reality, and there's a futurist interpretation for you, which is very real, very real, especially to a London-bred laddie like myself. Because what happened to Europe 
whilst the Europeans were demographically asleep and couldn't be bothered to breed, well, the Turks and the Tunisians became the kids that they couldn't be bothered to have, didn't they? And they moved in. You see, the Turks and the Tunisians are the children that the Europeans couldn't be bothered to have the past generation. And now they're all 25 years and younger and ready to go on a rampage. This is futurism. And really, it's Leninism, isn't it? And I'm not talking Vlad here. I'm talking John. I'm not talking Leninism. I'm talking Leninism, as in John Lennon. What do I mean? Imagine, imagine remember that, that, that song? Imagine all the people. Well, let's look at that. Imagine there's no heaven. Check. The churches in Europe are empty and dead. Most Europeans are secular atheists. What's the next line? Imagine all the people living for today. Check. You've got a continent of narcissistic, self-absorbed, morally superior socialists. Imagine there's no countries. Oh, check. John Lennon would be very proud of the European Union today. That was his dream that was infiltrated by the Beatles and millennium bugs on the back of Tunisian migrants. And that's what you see today. And finally, nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Is that Arabia today? Isn't it such? That's the European Union in a death spiral. John Lennon's Imagine Song has come truly upon the shores of Europe. And of course, the environmentalists, they got it all wrong, didn't they? They got it all wrong. It's not a question of sustainable growth. How are we going to deal with this population explosion? Oh, Agenda 21. None of that's true. There's not a population explosion. It's really, how are we going to deal with a sustainable lack of growth? Because there's never been a culture before that's ever done this experiment and survived. Not a culture in the history of humankind that has sustainably survived when it has shrunk. It's imploded and collapsed. The Mongols, the Romans, all gone because of demographic decline and the death spiral. So to shrink demographically is not to survive and historical precedent dictates. So this is all futurist interpretation. Does that make sense? When we look at the book of Revelation. Specifically, I'm talking about the apocalyptic equestrians. But this is compounding and compounding more and more as we see the days moving further into darkness. Just the difference between what we have here in America and in the European Union. Americans work 22% more than the Europeans. You see, they're so, so busy going to the south of France with their esprit de soleil and getting a wicked tan that they're not paying attention that who's moving over the border and taking their apartments while they've left to go to the south of France. You see, sometimes while you were asleep, the world changed. And that's what's happened to Europe. So when I look at the book of Revelation and I look at it in a futurist interpretation, does the book of Revelation picture a land of beturbent, prophet barbarians it certainly could it certainly could and it all comes down to conclusion and interpretation and there's two things to look at number one imminent judgment and imminent judgment is seen as a type of or a prelude to the eschatological judgment 
Yesterday on London Bridge, some people saw imminent judgment running their way with two bitches, butcher's knife, right? Now, was that a preview to eschatological judgment? Well, it depends whether they were believers or not, or what God they believed in. Most Europeans are atheists, so I doubt it. But you don't know. You don't know. But the two are often blended together, imminent judgment and eschatological judgment, and that's what we see in the book of Revelation. And the two are often blended together with a disregard to chronology. What do I mean? This is where the Greco-Roman mindset that many of us interpreted in the church helps us fall flat on our face when it comes to understanding the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation isn't this chronological run to the finish line. The way that I would understand it as a futurist method would be as if I took you to Portland Opera before it started. And I took you down into the pit. And I said, well, Doug, check this out. Over here, we've got a beautiful Steinway concert grand piano. And over here, look at the look at the string section. Absolutely phenomenal. Let's go up here, and you can see now the percuss- percussion section. Oh, oh, my goodness. Look at these. Look at these masterpieces. And now let's go over here, and we'll go into the wind section. Okay? That's the book of Revelation. Just because John showed you first the keyboard, then the strings, that doesn't mean it's going to play out that way. It's an orchestra. It's a prophetic orchestra. And when it starts playing, you better be ready. Just because, first of all, he shows you the Steinway, and the last thing he showed you was the kettle drums, doesn't mean it's going to play out that way. This isn't Greek chronology. That is a very important part of my introduction. It's huge. Because that is what stumbles people when it comes to the trumpets, the seals, and the bowls, the plague judgment. Oh, oh, so he showed me the Steinway first. Well, uh, when's that one coming along? No. It's harmonious. This is an apocalyptic orchestra. And yes, those equestrians are going to ride right out into the audience. And if you're asleep, they will slaughter you. And if you're awake, you'll make it to the fire exit in time. Because I tell you what, the curtain is about to drop. And we're seeing this playing out in our time. And I think that's a great analogy. So anyway, this is all part of understanding the book of Revelation. So my interpretation, of course, the correct interpretation, I'm kidding. It's a blending of the preterist and the futurist methods. I believe that's the correct interpretation, and I'll explain that a little bit further. The beast, the beast is both Rome and the eschatological Antichrist and any, any demonic power which the assembly of the righteous, you and I, must face in her entire history. So yes, it could be Rome, historically, preterist, yes, but futurist, the beast could very well undergo a metamorphosis into the jihadi prophet barbarians. Very much so. It's possible that now is a plague that could decimate the West, not since the bubonic one that last stalked their shores in 1666 and they torched the whole of London. And the next day, guess what? They realized, well, hang on a minute. We need to go back. I think it was Sir Isaac Newton had to go back to Cambridge or Oxford, I'm not sure, and rethink his whole theology because 1666 wasn't the end, 666. And he had to go back and restudy theology at one of Europe's, England's greatest universities. So again, preterism, but also a futurist interpretation. Get ready for a metamorphosis from Rome into 
any beast that rises in these days that we now find ourselves. So that is the balance, I, between, I believe, between a preterist and futurist mode of interpretation. So the Great Tribulation is primarily an eschatological event, but it does, it really does include all tribulation past, present, and future, which we as the saints may suffer at the hands of the world. And I think that's a balanced interpretation of the book of the Revelation and how to approach it. So what I'm trying to do in these introductions is just kind of lay my cards on the table and demonstrate to you how I plan on approaching the book of Revelation so you can see either to join with me or go, well, I'll come along for the bit, but I understand that this is the way he views it and I'm more of a historicist. Well, that's fine. That's fine. I'm just explaining how I came to those conclusions. So apocalyptic writings are concerned with the consummation of Yahweh's end-time redemptive purpose and the eschatological end of the age. And this book does actually claim to be prophecy, and the nature of prophecy is to do what? It is to let the light of Yahweh shine from the future into our very present today. And that's what inspires me to teach the Bible, is the light from the future shines into my very present today. And that's inspiring because that shows me that the word of Yahweh is alive and it is sharper than a two-edged sword. Now, it's the nature of apocalyptic symbolism to refer to events in history leading up to this end-time eschatological consummation, which, of course, means the end of the age. It's the end of the age as we know it. Yahweh does promise through the book of Revelation to intervene in human history and to bring times of trouble to an end. And he does promise to destroy all wickedness, and that would be eschatological salvation. And we look forward to that. That's our inheritance. But we're going to have to weather the storm before we get there. And the way we're going to weather the storm is by the light of Yahweh, the future, coming into our present. And if we can capture that as we journey through the book of Revelation together, we'll have a sure foundation and be able to weather whatever this world throws at us. And that's my hope. That's my hope. So the book of Revelation is apocalyptic as it is eschatological in its belief that the power of evil, of course, Satan, who is now in control of this temporal and hopelessly evil age of human history in which you and I, the righteous, oh yeah, we're for sure afflicted. But there's more. There's so much more to the story because apocalyptism involves a historical theological problem consisting of three elements. Let's look at these three elements, which is all about the apocalyptic. And it involves a historical theological problem, and it consists of, number one, the emergence of of a righteous remnant. Where did you guys come from? Where did you all come from? You were pork-eating, Sunday-serving, lobster-chewing, catfish-fishing pagans 10 years ago, weren't you? I know you were. Where did you all come from? The emergence of a righteous remnant who maintains loyalty to Yahusha and keeps his commandments against the mood of syncretism and papal paganism and the synagogue of Satan. Where did you all come from? How did it happen? 
And it's all been within the last 20 years. So that's the first element that we find with this historical theological problem that is now coming upon the wicked. There is the rising up of the righteous remnant. Number two, there's a problem with evil. Number two, there's a problem with evil. Even when Israel was attempting to keep the book of the law, she was still undergoing national abuse. And we, even though we are attempting to keep the commandments of Yahuwah, many of you find yourself being abused by the state, by the system, by your employers, by the world at large, because we live in the world, but we are not of this world. And this is what we're finding, that just as Israel was attempting to follow the book of the law, she was still undergoing national abuse. And this problem was only solved and can only be solved when Yahushua came and he ushered in the book of the covenant, resolving the dispute between commandment keeping and the ways of fallen man. And the third historical theological problem is the cessation of prophecy at the very time when people need it the most. And this is what brought me here to Torah to the tribes, is sitting too long in churches and going, you don't have the answer to my problems of dealing with the world. Oh yeah, I know that Yahushua died, rose again three days and three nights later and sits at the right hand of the Father and his blood has atoned for me. Amen and amen. But I would like to be equipped in this sick and twisted world and somebody teach me how to navigate it through the Bible and I need to hear the words of prophecy in a dark and dismal age. And they didn't have anything for me, so I left. And I thought, well, I'll have a go at teaching it myself and see if I can do a better job. You guys be the judge if I'm succeeding or not. So I think we have to understand this is not the time for a cessation of prophecy. This is the time when the prophecy must go forward. And that's why I am teaching the book of Revelation because I believe Yahuwah wants that prophetic word to come forth out of this ministry and into all of our hearts because I'm being ministered to just as much as you are because I am seeking and searching Yahuwah and I believe that he has answered my prayers and your prayers together. So the major role in this introduction of apocalyptic thinking is to explain why the righteous suffer and why the kingdom of Yahuwah is delayed. I mean, isn't, I mean, is that your daily trouble? It certainly is mine. Why do I suffer? Am I doing something wrong? Am I in sin? And, and why is the kingdom being delayed? I mean, how much longer of this are we going to endure? So, apocalyptism is always eschatological. And it treats a period of time, yet future, where Yahweh is just going to bust through. He's just going to break through into the world of time and space to bring the entire system to a final reckoning. And you're seeing that right now. You're seeing it with fiat currency. You're seeing it with borders. And you know what? You're going to see a blockchain takeover in the next five years. The whole system's going to be turned upside on its head because mystery Babylon is going to fall. That is an eschatological promise. Will it be delayed? I don't know but I can look and see the signs and the seasons of which we do where live. Whereas prophecy is always predictive in the sense that the prophets were visionaries. They envisioned the future that should arise out of their present. And that's what I do. And I think that's what many of you do. 
you envision. I have a very vivid imagination. I envision the future out of my present and layer it through the scripture. And that's why I love prophecy. But the apocalyptics, they knew the future that would break into the present. And they knew that it was divinely communicated to them. They had an assurance. It wasn't situationally determined, for example, oh, well, the Babylonian army, I can see they're marching to, oh, oh, yes, there's Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, that's right. We're in a world of trouble. No, they knew it before they ever saw the armies of Babylon coming. They just chose not to listen to Jeremiah the prophet. They just chose not to listen to what Baruch had scribbled down. They chose not to write. They chose not to listen to the writings and the oration of the prophets. But they knew it was a coming. Surely so, surely so. So, all that to say this, with my long-winded introduction, the apocalyptic is dualistic. The apocalyptic is dualistic. It is both historical and temporal. What do I mean? There's really two opposing supernatural powers, Yahuwah and Satan. Two opposing supernatural powers. And there are two distinct ages. So there's your dualism, right? The present one that's temporal and evil and the one to come that is timeless and it's perfectly righteous. That's the one that we all hope for. But we have to get through the temporal and evil one so that we can arrive at the timeless and perfectly righteous one. And that's called the preservation of the saints who can endure those that hang on for dear life. And sometimes it feels like you're hanging on for dear life. And sometimes I look around and I go, well, where did that person go? What happened to them? Oh, where did they go? Oh, and there's only a few of us left. Where did we go? Well, the cares of the world. It's the parables that Yahushua spoke about, the thorns and the thickets and the birds of the air and the temptations of filthy lucre and the world that's out there. Or just a apathy. Ah, I'm tired. I've been into this apocalyptic for a decade. Quarter of a century, century, half a century. No, never get tired. Continue to be inspired. You have to push and push all the way to the very end. So there are two distinct ages and there are two opposing supernatural powers. We just have to continue to persevere to the very end. The first is very temporal and it's under the control of Satan. And the second is under the eternal control of Yahweh. So there really is two ages and two worlds. Number one, the present and visible. And number two, the perfect world that has existed since the foundation of the world. And that's what I lay claim to. That's what you should lay claim to. Because that's our inheritance. So, the apocalyptic also sheds light on the problem of suffering. It does. Because prophecy is supposed to be, and I know many people have got this all wrong, especially in the messy, messianic movement. Prophecy is supposed to be about consoling the righteous. But too many times with Bible believers, the scripture is about rebuking your brother. You know how many times I get, I mean, if I give you online just an inch to rebuke me, oh, people would far rather rebuke me than console me. I need some consolation. It's called the consolation of Israel. 
That's what we're to be doing. But too many brethren are all about rebuke. That's not prophecy. Not to the household of faith, if we are of the faith. We're to console one another. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about consoling the righteous rather than rebuking them for their failures and the conviction that they're living in the last days. Torah to the tribes needs to be, I pray you will see it, be a ministry of consoling, not a ministry of rebuke. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to have a good old go once at a while at the synagogue of Satan and those little wolves, that little foxes that try and sneak in amongst the vines. Of course I will. But ultimately, it's about consoling my brothers and my brothers and sisters consoling me. It's called the consolation of Israel. That's what I like to see. See, the prophets, they were primarily preachers. They were primarily preachers whose messages were written down at a later time. That's the reality. See, when we look at an apocalyptic narrative like the book of Revelation, these were literary men. I mean, they were literary men who put their confidence in the written word of Yahuwah as a method of communicating their view. And symbolism was all about and symbolism is extremely important. It plays a major role in the apocalyptic. How can you get through the book of Revelation without acknowledging that there is symbolism abounding? But what do you do when you come across that symbolism? That's the key to your prophetic success, is we have to understand that the prophetic gives free reign to the imagination and don't run from it. Let your imagination run wild with symbols of the most bizarre sort. Because when you let your imagination run wild with that bizarre symbology, it will become the norm. And you'll be like the prophets of old and you'll get close to the very age and the dawning of its prophetic symbolism, the age to come today. So I, I do let my imagination run wild. I enjoy it. I let it thoroughly run wild until the early hours of the morning. And hopefully whilst I'm sleeping too, most of the time. And then I'd write down little notes in the morning and some of them are so bizarre. I would not let any of you read them. But then over time, I start to formulate real thinking based upon some bizarre journaling. That isn't something to be afraid of. It's to be run headlong and embrace because that is what the literary men of the apocalypse always did. So I'm going to employ it too. Apocalyptics gained a hearing in a time when prophecy had ceased. And today, there are too many believers that have no prophetic vision because they're preterists. They believe it all took place in 70 of the common era. Or they're not awoken to the commandments of Yahweh, the feasts, the festivals, and the Sabbaths. So they have no bearing because their life is a life of papal syncretism. So they can't hear the still small voice of prophecy. All they can hear is the jingling of Father Christmas as his fat belly gets stuck down their chimney. Oh, that's their decision. That's not where we want to be. So we have to be aware of the day and the age that we live in. And beware of the apocalyptic equestrians running around London that we saw yesterday. These beturbaned Mohammedans with butcher knives. What are we going to do? This really affects me because I go back and visit my mom and my family. And there's 25, no, not 25. Sorry, I got my numbers wrong here. Get my demographics right. There is over a million, a million Mohammedans in London currently. And half of those are under 25 years old. You see, they're the children that the Europeans neglected to have because they couldn't be bothered to breed. So now you've got all these Turks 
and Tunisians running around the continent, they're the children that the Europeans couldn't be bothered to have. Now, according to a recent British poll, 7% of Mohammedans in London think suicide attacks on civilians are justified. And I, I know what you say. Oh, it's only 7%. No, but this isn't 7% of a football team with David Beckham as their captain. No, this is 7% of a million. That's 70,000 beturban butchers with an up-the-pole profit captaining their team into paradise. That's quite a healthy pool to pull from, isn't it? So I don't think these problems are going to go away. Because you can buy good old butcher's knives and steak knives in pretty much any haberdashery throughout London. And you've got a pool of 70,000 following the up-the-pole profit ready to do this stuff. So this is something of the future, not something of the past that's come into our very present. So the question to ask, are you ready? Are you ready? I know I'm ready. And next week, I hope we'll all be ready for chapter one if we survive another week of impeachments, Pelosi and, of course, the jihadi prophet pirates running around London and the continent with butcher's knives. What a sad state of affairs. But like I say, these apocalyptic equestrians, they're not riding side saddle, they're Europeans, and they're riding backwards. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Al-Maut, that means Arabic for death. And Jahin, which means Arabic for hell, followed with him. And power was given unto them over a fourth part of the earth to kill with the Saif. That's Arabic for the butcher's knife. And with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. I told you they were riding backwards, didn't I? And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil from the wine. And there went out another horse, another horse, that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take Islam to the earth. That means to remove peace by bringing the sword. That's what Islam means. That thou shalt kill one another, and there was given unto him al-Saif al-Mubar-Arza. That is Arabic for a great sword, as opposed to the butcher knife that you can get from the haberdashery. And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had an anibalu, which means Arabic for a bow, and a tajan, which is Arabic for a crown, and was given unto him, and he went forth, with Islamification, conquering, and to Islam, which means to conquer. So it doesn't really take too much free reign given over the imagination and too much symbolism to draw those kinds of conclusions, does it? And that's just one interpretation of Arabay. Arabay a play on words for Arabs and locusts and a locust army, just as you saw back in the 7th and 8th century, riding around the deserts of Jerusalem. We do live in a time 
but we're ahead of our time. But we also have to be aware that prophecy speaks into our time. And like I say, this is just one interpretation, and I'll give you many. But the best will be an interpretation of consolation, not an interpretation of rebuke. So, my hopes is that we can dig into chapter 1 next week, but I hope this sets the ground for you of understanding where I'm coming from and how I approach the Scripture. I deliberately took these two weeks because in the past, people have really been complimentary of the introductions because it has really helped them to understand the book of Hebrews, the Malkitzedic message, specifically the book of Romans. So I really felt that if I was going to be authentic and deliver a message which people could understand, I at least needed to paint a very clear picture of introducing you, not only to the book of Revelation, but introducing you to my thoughts and my interpretation so you could at least understand where I'm coming from. And you don't have to agree with me. Hopefully, you'll see the value of where I'm coming from because it is based upon much prayer, much study, and you know me, I like to look at the historical whole. And my balance is looking at preterism and bringing it forward into a futuristic view. Amen? All right, questions, comments? Any apocalyptic equestrians, please. All right, here's our first question. Are the elite the ones trying to manifest revelation purposely or is it indirectly coming about because of wanting control? Again, I think um, we, we live in, in a time, if we're going to look at one of the, the first um, views, is the, like I say, it's kind of my little fun joke, these apocalyptic horsemen. But if you go back to the origin of Revelation 6, John's actually pulling that of course, from, where's he pulling that from? Zephaniah, isn't it? I'm drawing a blank. I believe so. On the apocalyptic horseman there. And what you really have is you have a distinction between a northern hemispheric judgment where the, the, the horses ride to the north and a southern hemispheric judgment where the horses ride to the south. Now, when you look at the northern hemispheric versus the southern hemispheric judgment, I think that in all honesty you can see that this is a controlled collapse that has been put forth for over a century in the planning. And some of those older documents where it talks about World War III and what they need to do to destabilize and using um, Islamic foot soldiers to get the job done by breaking down the, the, um, the borders, by bringing destabilization, and of course, all of the cradle-to-grave benefits, which is going to collapse the fiat system. So I do believe it's a planned implosion. Again, it's about bringing order, a new world order, out of a controlled and collapsed chaos. So, I mean, a lot of this has been going on since about 1917. So we're, we're just over the 100-year mark. Any other questions? That's it. Well, Baruch Hashem Yahweh, sorry we were late getting going today. It's always fun. We've always got cabling and broadcast things to take care of. But we do thank you for your support, all of you online and all of you here today. Let's get blessed as we jump in next week. I hope you can join me. Revelation Chapter 1, we'll be going through the book, unlike the introduction, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So where you didn't get a lot of scriptural content today or last week, that was purposeful because you need to get the introduction. But next week, what we're going to be doing is delving right into the text 
and building that platform going forward for an exciting, exciting journey. So again, remember, you got to the end of the video. If you've hate watched all the way to here, then I want to just give you a round of applause because you made it. So you should definitely give us some thumbs up. And the rest of you that love this, give us some thumbs up anyway, because it does help the channel. And again, subscribe to the channel, hit that notifications bell, and I may just ping you in the pocket.